0: Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. My usual co-host on today's episode is out in Phoenix. Tanya Mack from Women's Telehealth is presenting at a conference and enjoying the raging heat that they're experiencing out in the Southwest out there. So we'll hope all is going well for her at her conference. But uh, today we're going to be getting into being pregnant in the summertime. And, uh, it's very appropriate, obviously, given where we are on the calendar and the fact that the, the heat is starting to press in on us here in the Atlanta area and beyond. And we have a couple of physicians that work with ladies throughout their pregnancy. Some, um, and Dr. Rao here with us, uh, also working with women when they're experiencing gynecologic issues. I've got Dr. Winnie Sufi and Dr. Rama Rao of Women's Health Associates from here in the Atlanta area, sitting in the studio. Thanks for joining us, ladies.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Glad to be here. Well, I'm pleased to have you. And before we get too far into talking about what it's like to be pregnant in summer and tips that ladies can follow to uh, have a better outcome there, start with you, Dr. Sufi. Talk about why medicine and then from there, why why women's health?
1: Well, my training is actually interesting because I um, was interested in music and I did my bachelor's in music. But At the same time, I loved um, the classical piano, but found that graduating, there wasn't very much out there for me. (laughs) And I really enjoyed taking care of women and found a calling for that. So I pursued um, medicine after that and and graduated from University of Illinois and did my medical school training there and went to Duke and did my um, residency there. And here I am. I've been in Atlanta for 20 years now.
0: And in 20 years, do you have an idea of approximately how many babies you've delivered over that time?
1: Well, I was counting for a while, and then I'm estimating more than 3,000, so (laughs) I probably added to the population here.
0: (laughs) And going into OB as a part of your practice, I guess you're not a big fan of sleep. You get to come out in the middle of the night and...
1: Yes, definitely. <laughs> you have to, I mean, I really love what I do. And I think just um, that love and the energy I get from delivering patients is what keeps me doing what I'm doing.
0: Well, I'm certainly pleased to have you here. And then, of course, recently joining the practice is Dr. Rama Rao. And um, what what's your story, Dr. Rao? How did you get into medicine? What made you go down that path? And then ultimately, just like Dr. Sufi, what, what took you into women's health?
2: Sure. Um, I grew up with a family of healthcare professionals. My father is an internal medicine, my husband is an internist. I have an ophthalmologist in the family, a general surgeon, so a whole host of various medical professionals, but no one really in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. Being a woman and taking care of women with various aspects of their obstetrics and gynecologic health. You know, anywhere from delivering their babies, and then once they're done with that aspect of their life, moving on to the gynecologic aspect of their well-being really attracted me to that field. So I'm the first one in my family to get into this field. I always believe that taking care of a woman is so rewarding, and I'm passionate about it. But really, let's think about it for a second. Who wants to take care of a sick man when you can take care of a beautiful woman? So there you (laughs) have it. I can
0: understand that. Um,
2: And so I also went to uh, Tulane Medical School um, for my uh, medical school training. Had an incredible training there and then went off to Robert Wood Johnson UMDNJ up in New Jersey for my residency. I was in private practice for about seven years and then I decided to go into a um, gynecologic surgery fellowship. Which I actually undertook here at Northside Hospital, I finished that and um, happy to provide all what I can do for these wonderful women of the city
0: of Atlanta. And that's really where you focus your particular practice now is in that gynecologic surgical space. You don't really deal with delivering babies anymore. You, you're you're focused on that gynecologic surgical side.
2: Correct. My entire focus is taking care of the gynecologic health and well-being of
0: women. Now does that go into the the gynecologic oncology as well or how does that flow in terms of your, your particular <clears throat> practice So
2: the field of gynecology has you know general gynecology and then more complex gynecologic surgery and then after that is really the field of oncology gynecologic oncology Okay So in order for us to do gynecologic oncology surgery you need even more specialty training more even more than what I've done so, after my residency and after being in private practice for several years, I did a two year fellowship where I did probably about seven, eight hundred gynecologic surgeries in that two year period. And so, um, had I wanted to do oncology, I probably would have, would probably need to do two more years of just specifically cancer surgery. Man but i think i'm going to hold off on that for now <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean after all that school that you've been through uh, i would i think i would go the same path and and you know leave it to the folks that are already have already gone through all that
2: that's exactly right
0: <laughs> in your time of doing surgery was there a, a situation that kind of leapt out at you where maybe the uh, you know, it was just one of those that really made an impact on you in terms of the either something that happened with the patient or their outcome, what really stands out along you know, the way? You know,
2: as far as just thinking about one specific patient, CW, it's hard for me to expound on that. To me, just on a daily basis, we see so much with all of these women who have, you know, anywhere from pelvic pain to uterine fibroids to an ovarian mass to urinary incontinence, where they're unable to really go out into the society because of all of their various gynecologic problems. So to me, I think that for me on a daily basis, I see so much, and um, really I have an impact on these ladies, and these ladies have such a huge impact on me. So every day to me is a blessing to take care of these wonderful ladies.
0: And what about you, Dr. Suvio 20 years over 3,000 deliveries. you have anything, you know, situations or an experience that really stands out for you?
1: I have the same um, sentiments as Dr. Rao. I mean, every delivery is special. I mean, you feel that you have that impact for bringing a baby into the world. It's so special to be included as part of that special moment. And our practice is unique in the sense that each of us have our own set of patients. So we take care of them the whole pregnancy and we probably deliver 80% of our own patients. So we really have that connection and that rapport with the patient. We get to know them, get to know their families, get to be part of the experience. And it's every, every delivery special. And we take care of the patients before they become pregnant and afterwards and through menopause. So we see them through the whole spectrum of their lifetime.
0: From 1990 to 1998, I was in nursing doing cardiovascular intensive care. In the school phase of that, I got to go into obviously rotate through labor and delivery and see a handful of deliveries. And, and I have to say that, you know, in addition to just being there for my own daughter's delivery, I mean, it, it really is an amazing event. I was mm-hmm. surprised, honestly, by just how emotional I found it, just my, myself witnessing that happening. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine getting to do that, you know, every day. Right. got to be quite rewarding.
1: Yes, I just came from a delivery, so that's the foremost in my mind right now. And she came in and did wonderful. And to be part of that is just, it's amazing every time, even after 20 years.
0: Well, talking about pregnancy and, and delivering children um, into the world, here we are in June, and as we've talked about here in our area and around the Atlanta area, it's certainly warm and um, much sunshine. And and that brings its own set of challenges for the lady that is carrying a child. And that's one of the things we wanted to try to get into uh, around some things that they can do to avoid challenges around that and how to make their life a little bit more comfortable while they're experiencing pregnancy during the the, the summertime. Can you get into hydration and and how important that is. Because I can imagine that when you're having to to basically manage hydration for two entities or more, that it can be challenging when you're losing water through sweat and perspiration and just breathing.
1: Definitely. We um, focus a lot of our appointments right now with the heat and making sure that patients are hydrating and staying out of the sun, watching the heat index and making sure it's not yellow or more, the color codes. Um, but hydration is very important because if women become dehydrated when they're pregnant, this puts them at an increased risk for preterm labor. And a lot of women ask, well, how much should I hydrate? And I tell them to gauge it according to what their urine looks like, the color of their urine. If it's light or the color of lemonade, that's good. If it's darker, gets then they're not hydrating enough because everyone's different in terms of how much they're they are outside and how much, how active they are. So, hydration is key in, in in this type of weather.
0: So, it's not necessarily, you hear guidelines, eight glasses of water a day, things like that, but it's not so much that because it can really vary from person to person, I would assume. And as you say, using the color of the urine when you actually go to the restroom is, is the big guide. Am I getting enough water? Because one quantity for one person may not be the same effect as it is for someone else, I assume. Yes, that's correct. Now, what about what to drink? I mean, obviously, I would assume water is probably one of the better things, but are there other options? I'm sitting here uh, drinking a, a Coke Zero. I'm sure that's probably not the best <laughs> for a number of reasons, um, but that's I, I think what we're consuming to hydrate is probably an important factor.
1: Right. So water is probably the best thing to hydrate, but if you have an athlete or someone that is outdoors and sweating a lot, you do have to replace some electrolytes. So you may want to take some Gatorade. But on the other hand, you don't want to drink too much Gatorade because it's that much salt can cause swelling as well. So everyone's different in terms of their activity and how much they're sweating and how many uh, electrolytes they need to replace.
0: Talking about hydration, something I learned yesterday, accidentally my wife, has decided to do some juicing over the next week or two, and and one of the concoctions had celery as a component. Mm-hmm. And she she commented at the end of the day, I can't believe how much I was going to the bathroom. I was going to the bathroom, going to the bathroom. Well, ter- evidently that celery, particularly when it's juiced mm-hmm. like that, can be Diuretic in nature, and I didn't, I didn't know, I'd never heard that before, but she said I was going to the bathroom constantly. So I mean, I, I, I would imagine that a lot of people don't understand that there's things like that, like caffeine in the drink that I'm drinking right now. Those things can cause us to lose water at a faster pace.
1: Right, and also you have to make sure with the juicing that. The foods are pasteurized or that they're washed and cleaned well and um, that there's not too much sugar because a lot of fruits have a lot of sugar. So you have to be careful, especially diabetics or gestational diabetics.
0: And on the topic of hydration, what about exercise at this time of the year? I know that that these days they say you can train if you're a runner or you do other types of physical activity that you can stay active really about almost as long as it's comfortable. But what about that in terms of, are there issues to think about with regards to not only hydration, but body heat, things like that, and how they might affect the baby?
1: Yes, exactly. So if you're used to exercising, you can continue um, exercising. And just, I would tell patients to make sure that they review it with their provider on their level of activity to make sure that their pregnancy isn't having any complications that would preclude them from doing certain activities. But if they're used to jogging, then I would try to avoid the midday and jog at night or earlier in the morning to avoid the heat and just be very cognizant on how much they're drinking to make sure they're hydrating
0: Now, does being physically active like that have any kind of impact that we know about with regards to the risk of going into labor early or preterm labor? Does that put me at greater risk or not really?
1: If someone's used to exercising, it shouldn't be a problem to exercise again. But as long as their pregnancy is pretty um, normal and, and there's no complications, then it shouldn't be a problem
0: talking with women's health specialists, Dr. Winnie Sufi and Dr. Rama Rao of Women's Health Associates here in Atlanta near Northside Campus. And we're talking about pregnancy during the summer months and things that uh, pregnant mothers can think about to make sure that they stay safe and keep the baby safe during this period of time. And um, obviously, hydration being one of those big factors that is a big risk for not only pregnant women, but uh, everybody at this time of the year. If somebody should start having some challenges that looks like they're going into preterm labor, are there some symptoms they need to be thinking about along that line to be clued in as to whether they need to go be seen or, you know, get to the ER? When do, when do they, what do they need to think about?
1: So we review um, preterm labor signs, which include contractions and what they feel like are menstrual cramps that they last approximately 40 seconds to a minute long. And depending on how far along they are, for example, if they're about 24 weeks, you don't wanna have more than four contractions in an hour. However, at 32 weeks, you may have more. So we tell patients as long as they're not having more than six in an hour, but basically a contraction feels like it intensifies and then it builds up and then it relaxes. Um, Women can have it in their back or in their um, abdomen but basically, if they're worried or if they're feeling tightenings, um, what they should do is lie down, drink lots of fluids and just time the the sensations. And if they feel the rhythmicity of four or six contractions in an hour, then um, still even with lying down and drinking fluids, then they need to call their provider and check in with them.
0: Now, I know that being out in the sun um, when you are pregnant can cause you to have maybe a little bit more of a darkening of the skin, and particularly in certain areas of the body, I guess a, as a response to the estrogen, are there some recommendations that you have around sun, ex- sun exposure to protect the skin as far as I would recommend a, a, a sunblock of X strength or particular ones? Any what, what are considerations around that?
1: Yeah, so basically we tell patients to try to stay out of the heat or in the sun in the midday and to wear a hat and to um, wear the sunscreen um usually like 30 or 45 is the fsp um f screen block strength that we recommend
0: and there's not any i guess there's no chemicals in any of those that someone would need to be worried about whether they pay attention to what type or or anything like that no that should be fine what about what about when it comes to what we should eat should we think about our diet in any particular way or is it really more or less continue on with the healthy diet that we were eating, you know, according to our doctor's recommendations. What about sodium as it relates to this? We were just talking about hydration. Do you need to take more or less? Or
1: um, We recommend in general less sodium because um, women swell up a lot during pregnancy. So there's a lot of concern with that. So if they drink a lot of um, carbonated drinks, that has a lot of salt, actually, and a lot of Gatorade, that would have a lot of sodium. So you want to avoid the salt in the diet, un- unless they're exercising a lot and we're worried about
0: them losing electrolytes. What about going swimming? Should I, should I stay out of the pool? Or is it a good thing for me to be doing? I would think that it's probably a, a, a good way to exercise, but...
1: Actually, we encourage women to um, swim as long, as, again, as their, comp- um, their pregnancy is uncomplicated um, because a lot of the pressure and discomforts with pregnancy they feel um, in the pool The pregnancy is lighter and they get relief and it's a a good form of exercise. So the pool is a
0: great therapy. Do you find recommending that when someone is pregnant in this time of the year that maybe they think about what they're wearing, wearing some of the, I guess, more breathable type fabrics, light colors, things like that, so that they're not soaking up so much radiant heat from the sun and things like that in terms of what they should wear.
1: Yes, exactly. Light clothing and breathable clothing so that they don't feel um, so confined and light colors
0: is what what we usually recommend. Well, now vacations a big time uh, the, uh, coming around right now in the summer months and travel has been in the news with regards to pregnancy with the Zika virus going on I mean the the they're obviously recommending that women that are pregnant or thinking they may become pregnant soon not travel to those types of areas. Um, any other thoughts around vacation type travel when I'm pregnant, and particularly when this, you know, the the weather is hot like this?
1: Um, traveling is fine. Again, check with the provider. But the most comfortable time to travel is probably around the second trimester, um, which is about 14 to 26 weeks. But after. 28 weeks, I would just check with, um, again, your provider to make sure it's safe. Um, The Zika virus is a big concern, so I would refer to the CDC website to see if you're traveling abroad, what countries are safe to travel to, and if vaccinations are necessary, if it's even recommended that pregnant women go to travel to these countries. The other thing is for long car rides or long trips, it's important to get up and move around um, just to avoid the risks of having a clot in your leg develop. For pregnant women, that they are at more risk for developing deep vein thrombosis or clots in their legs. Um usually that's circumvented because they have to go to the bathroom. So they usually have to get up and, <laughs> it makes and you hit stop. the bathroom. <laughs> exactly.
0: What is it about the the timing of the pregnancy that makes that traveling by car more or less risky?
1: Um well just for third trimester, we don't just don't want people to go into labor and be mm. you know, where they can't access health care or be away from home. First trimester can sometimes people feel really exhausted and nauseated, so they don't really wanna get in the car, they feel kind of sick. But um, so second trimester is usually the best time, but we do have women travel up to 32 weeks um, by flight. But again, I would just individualize each patient and make sure they check with their provider.
0: Talking about being pregnant in the summer with women's health specialist, Dr. Winnie Sufi and Dr. Rama Rao, and when it comes to Thinking about, you mentioned earlier some of the symptoms of preterm labor, but are there other things that I need to be kind of thinking about as a as a expectant mom, whether it's how often the baby is kicking, how frequently you're feeling them move, different things like that, that they should sort of pay attention to, to think, okay, we're good, we're normal, we're maybe not, not as active as it should be, or even the other end, maybe it's more active than it should be.
1: Yeah, so that's actually one thing we always emphasize during the appointments. Um, usually women first pregnancies, they feel babies moving at 20 weeks, but we usually don't talk about kick counts until the movement's consistent. Usually around 24 weeks or so we start talking about movement counts and kick counts, not really kick counts, but any kind of movement where they should feel we usually tell patients to check after meals like after breakfast, lunch and dinner and make sure they feel a good period of movement for. 24 to 32 weeks we say on the average four movements in an hour not to check movements every hour of the day because you won't get any rest or but um, just after meals to make sure they feel a good period of movement after 32 weeks we increase that to six movements in one hour after meals or 10 movements in two
0: hours so is it it would so it would be worrisome if we weren't feeling that sort of a frequency of movement in those periods of time.
1: Yes, but I would like to also say there are cases where the placenta is in front or anterior. So women, some women may not feel all the movements. So that's why we say it has to depend on when the baby starts becoming consistent for that patient. Then we tell them to look out for that. But there are some women that don't feel as much movement usually. So we don't want them to get all nervous if they're not getting those kicks.
0: What about swelling? What do we need to think about with that? We're talking about drinking plenty of water. We know that you can have a measure of swelling, particularly in the lower extremities, but not only that, your hands. Um, What do I need to think about to protect myself from swelling because I know you can get a ring cut caught on your finger if you swell while you're wearing it.
1: Exactly. So after third trimester, if your f- fingers are so swollen that you can't get your rings off, you definitely need to keep them off for the rest of the pregnancy, or you may need to have your rings cut off, like you you mentioned. Um, but swelling is very common, especially first trimester. I mean, not first trimester, third trimester and pregnant moms with their first pregnancy. So I would tell women to hydrate, avoid the salt and make sure they have periods where they're resting during the day. So take an hour and just keep your feet up and drink lots of fluids and just rest at some point during the day. And that often helps. But it is a very common thing.
0: When it comes to actually delivering, I remember when my daughter was born, they came and talked to us about cord blood and storing the cord blood for future use for particular cancers, for example, or possibly other other uses for from a healthcare perspective for certain conditions. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, because it is an investment. Uh, I'm I'm a parent that's been paying for it because you do have an annual fee to have it frozen and stored safely for your your child should they ever need to use it down the road. But what are your thoughts on that? Is that a valuable investment that I'm making or, or not?
1: I'm a big advocate for banking cord blood. Um, there's actually two options. You have the option for publicly storing the cord blood or saving it for yourselves. But The cord blood is a source of stem cells Mm. that can be used to treat over eighty diseases. Eighty diseases that we usually treat, but um, there are other clinical trials going on for looking for cerebral palsy, autism. So the potential for those stem cells are enormous, and it is expensive—not as expensive as people realize. Um, Average private banking, maybe $1,400 to store the cord blood, but then about $125 um, every year. Mm -hmm. And for pediatric um, cancers, um, for sibling transplants, about 50% of um, transplants are used using cord blood. So it's sort of a type of insurance policy that in the event that you needed it, you would want to have it.
0: When women's telehealth is is one of our partners here on the Top Docs radio show. And as we know, they provide access to maternal fetal specialists uh, using uh, telemedicine type technologies. And I know there are they're a practice that your your group works with. Can you talk for a moment just about how that folds into your particular practice when you're dealing with high-risk pregnancy moms? Because a lot of people, when they hear the, the the phrase telemedicine, for example, they think that it's dealing with rural patients only, but we're talking about a metropolitan practice, and yet your patients are able to benefit. Can you talk about from your your experience as an as a OB and how that works with your patients here?
1: Yes, yeah, so we use um, we often refer our patients to perinatologists, and one of the doctors that we use is Dr. Ann Patterson, who, does, who uses telemedicine technology, and it's nice because she's able to dial in on um, using telemedicine to consult with our patients, and they do an ultrasound in our office, and then she does a consult with the patient um, to talk about their pregnancy and the their risk factors and issues with their pregnancy.
0: Well, it's it's nice to be able to talk to one of the physicians that are actually deploying this kind of technology for their patients to get a sense of what it's like for, for you and, and your particular patients. Dr. Rao, going back to your conversation earlier with regards to your, your surgical work, mm-hmm. I know that technology has changed a lot these days and there's a whole slew of new different ways to do a surgery from robotics to uh, minimally invasive approaches and so forth. So for you, what what would you say since you've been practicing here in the last little little bit, what what are some of the big advances around gynecologic surgeries?
2: Sure. I, I think that the field of surgery in general is moving towards minimally invasive technology. But specifically, the field of gynecologic surgery, we are utilizing laparoscopy, utilizing da Vinci uh, robotic surgery, um, really to manage uh, uh, a variety of gynecologic issues and problems. Um, So I I really think that a lot of OBGYN physicians around the country and specifically in the Atlanta area really are utilizing laparoscopy and robotic surgery to handle a lot of the GYN issues that women present with.
0: And laparoscopy is where you just make some very small incisions, half inch or inch long, and and access it via some instruments. That, I guess, the abdomen is distended using some some gas. That's right. And then you're able to then using these devices. I don't see how you do it, but it's it it's um, through very small holes and openings. You're able to avoid that big midline or transverse type exactly incision right. that takes a long time to heal from.
2: Right. So laparoscopy, exactly what you were saying, CW. Usually. Um... At least I use about three small incisions. They're about a half a centimeter, you know, anywhere from four to five millimeters per incision, Mm -hmm. which is really, really small. Um, And then you use um, these long instruments and these long instruments basically become your hands, if you will. And you go inside the abdomen and do hysterectomies, remove masses around the uterus, around the ovaries, fallopian tubes, what have you. There's a variety of things we can do.
0: Sort of like building a ship in a bottle.
2: It really is. And um, it's, you know, it's challenging for me, but it's also really rewarding. Um, To me, you know, laparoscopy is a great tool in um, gynecologic surgery, but even more than laparoscopy is robotics. And robotics, just to kind of give a comparison between what laparoscopy and robotics is. Laparoscopy is you make three small incisions. Robotics, you make an extra fourth small incision. But the difference is in in laparoscopic surgery, you get a two-dimensional view of the structures you're looking at. But in robotics, you get a three-dimensional view. Mm -hmm. So you can basically look around the uterus, on top of the uterus, behind the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and you can turn around and take a look at the bowel. And so there's just so much you can see with um, robotic technology that you really can't with laparoscopy. I still think that there's a role for laparoscopy and robotics in gynecologic surgery, but in a well-trained physician's hands, um, robotics really is just what's at the forefront of gynecologic surgery.
0: And for the patients out there that are listening to this, we don't have a robot standing at the bedside uh, doing the surgery. What we're talking about is you actually, you, the physician, are basically you have your hands on controls and that becomes an extension of you. Then I guess the benefit of robotics as I've talked to surgeons over time is that there are certain functions, particularly certain incisions, certain movements that can become more precise or more, smooth that's um, right th- that can require a greater precision than maybe you might be able to achieve just by the human hand.
2: That's right and you know as you were uh, stating earlier you know you would avoid the large incisions either transverse or a vertical cut on the abdomen. And to me, uh, women that I've done surgery via laparoscopy versus robotics, majority of my women, nine out of 10 women that I've done robotics complain of less pain. Because there's when you place these trocars inside the abdomen and the robotic arms essentially attached to the trocar, the movement is all done inside the abdomen, okay. not on the edge of the skin.
0: I see. So the, when you're doing a laparoscopic procedure, manipulating the instruments by hand, I guess that. Where it moves through the incision is actually moving around against that soft tissue where it enters.
2: Around the fascia. Uh-huh. So there's lots of nerves and things that, you know, can cause pain as gotcha. you're manipulating and moving and getting down to where you're going. But in robotics, they're all at a fixed point. So whatever movements are done, are done inside the abdomen. And I sit at a console, basically the way I'm sitting right now, I'm comfortable. I take my shoes off and I put my feet on the various controls, my hands in the robotic console. And I'm just doing surgery utilizing both of my hands. I I really love it.
0: I never got an opportunity opportunity to see very many robotic surgeries. It was, I act like I'm really, really old. But I mean, at the time, it's still almost 20 years ago. That was just kind of becoming a new thing that they were really bringing into the OR. So I didn't really get to see it done. But I've heard from numerous physicians now over time that I've been able to deploy it from a range of things from the total joint replacements to the, the gynecologic surgery you're talking about I guess even in hair restoration they're able to right? really refine um, the approach and make it as you're talking about the outcomes are that much you know better and the recovery I guess is where you tend to really see it when you when you're trying to decide from a treatment planning perspective how do you decide the approach whether it's got to be the, the old-fashioned Open incision versus laparoscopic versus robotic.
2: That's a great question, CW. I really think that majority of gynecologic surgeries in the experienced hands could be done in a minimally invasive fashion. Um, and, you know, unless you have a very, very large uterus where it's sitting just underneath your xiphoid process, which is the breastbone. If you have a large uterus that big, or you ha- or you're concerned about a cancer in a woman whose ovary is very, very large, and if you go in and you rupture that cyst, you're sort of seeding that cancer all over the abdomen. Other than those conditions, I really believe that um, when, when, safe, when you safely can, you really should um, use minimally invasive techniques because of the vast amount of advantages that they offer to women
0: we talked briefly about uterine fibroids and in here in the Atlanta area for sure there's a, a large African-American population I know in that group of women they have a mildly larger propensity for developing uterine fibroids in addition to other women in in the community as well when you're dealing with uterine fibroids do you have some recommendations because I know you 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 treat with the full gamut you do surgery you do minimally invasive you also recommend in certain patients uterine fibroid embolization. And I know that many patients don't get to find out about all the options available. So can you talk about your approach to that?
2: Absolutely. You know, I I think that the first and foremost, um, it is our job as physicians and providers to offer our patients all the options that are out there, you know, not just uh, a pill or surgery or what have you. And once you've offered all the options, go over the risks and the benefits of each option. For instance, if you take women with uterine fibroids, you know those women that are finished with childbearing, that can handle surgery, that could withstand the um, you know the post op recovery period. I really believe that women with fibroids really should undergo definitive surgery, specifically a hysterectomy, removal of their tubes and uh, their and or their ovaries, depending on how old they are. But women who um, still uh, want children, I think that myomectomy or just removal of the fibroid is a great way of approaching that. That also could be done in a minimally invasive fashion, laparoscopy or robotics. And I think that women that are really not good surgical candidates, such as women that have other medical issues, such as, you know, cardiac problems, lung problems, where the anesthesiologist is not able to put them to sleep for a long period of time so that they can undergo the surgery safely. I think those specific women are women who have a bleeding disorder or who clot easily, you know, who have blood clots in their legs or blood clots in their lungs, you know, because surgery only increases those risks, unfortunately. So those women that are very ill but still have fibroids and bleeding problems, as long as they have a negative biopsy stating that there's not a cancer of the uterus, I think that those women are great candidates for the uterine fibroid embolization.
0: I know we do have, we were talking uh, before we went on the air today, I know that there are some interventional radiologists around the area that perform those on a regular basis and getting to somebody that does them regularly is obviously a, a good thing. So if that's an option for you, there are certainly physicians around the area that, are, that are good with those. Um, do you have a, a lot of times over, over the years, as I've been speaking with physicians, a lot of times there'll be patient groups or, or conditions that, I wish that patient got sent to me sooner or or I wish this patient had sought care sooner. Do you have some thoughts on particular types of Absolutely. conditions where you're either talking to a referral partner, geez, if you see this, get it to us as soon as you can, whatever that might be. Do you have that for a physician or for a patient?
2: Uh, that's a great question. You know, over the span of the last 10 years of my career since I finished my residency, Uh, One of the things that I hear, whether it's my uh, my nurses or my friends or my or the soccer moms at my kids soccer field is um, they all say, well, you know, I have a friend who uh, has leakage of urine when she coughs, laughs or sneezes. Or I have a friend who feels like her uterus is falling down or she feels a lot of pain and pressure um, or I have this constant need to urinate. And my doctor keeps giving me antibiotics, telling me it's a urinary tract infection. Well, after all of these things, nothing is being done. And they're also embarrassed to talk about it with their primary care providers. So really, you know, what I, if there's a message I can give to women across uh, Atlanta and the surrounding areas is, if you, if you know someone who has those problems, or if you yourself have those issues, come see us. You know, let us talk to you about the options that we could offer. You know, specifically, painful bladder syndrome is a very, very, very common problem that I see, that I've seen in my practice. Women think that they have chronic UTIs, they have uh, pain during urination, they have frequency, they have urgency, and they think, well, I have a UTI, my doctor will give me an antibiotic, it'll help for a few days, but then the symptoms are back again. Well, really, it's not really a urinary tract infection, it is something mm-hmm. called painful bladder syndrome. And if you Google that, there's tons of things that you can do as easy as altering your diet that can really help with some of those symptoms.
0: Now, Painful bladder syndrome, is that related in any way to interstitial cystitis? A different thing.
2: Very good. Um, So, interstitial cystitis was the old term. Painful bladder syndrome is now the newer term. Okay. So, it's the same thing. It's just um, now, you know, the American College of OBGYN has decided it's going to call it painful bladder syndrome because if you really think about it, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's a painful bladder syndrome. So, when you say things like interstitial cystitis, it really makes other people think, well, wait a minute, cystitis, is that an infection? Yeah. So do I really need a pill for that? You know. Yeah. So um, I appreciate the fact that ACOG has decided to convert the name to painful bladder syndrome.
0: Any closer to understanding what the typical cause is from what I understand in the past? We just, uh, some people had that problem and I, and I guess there was some thought that it might be some measure of, uh, of autoimmune type response or something like that. Do we have an idea of causes and I think that there's treatments. several
2: causes CW um, some of it is heredity the other is the diet that we take in you know for instance the coke zero that you're taking in which is you know you like it I like it but for some some of these women that have the propensity to develop the painful bladder syndrome symptoms things like cokes or any type of soda any type of spicy foods pizza the red sauce wine especially mm-hmm. red wine all of those things are very acidic to the lining of the bladder. Okay. So in these women over time, taking in all of these dietary things eliminates that safety coating on the bladder. It's called a glycosaminos glycans layer, and it really wipes it away. So if you think about it, urine is very, very acidic, right? But we all don't, you know, when our bladder is filled with urine, we all don't jump around yeah, going, ouch, right. you know, I've got something acidic sitting in my bladder because we all have the protective lining. But when that lining is gone because of the things that we've decided to take in, all of the irritants really irritate the bladder. And these women have symptoms of urinary frequency, urgency. Mm-hmm. I think I have another urinary tract infection. So heredity, diet, and uh, some of it has to do with, um, you know some autoimmune states that mm-hmm. we're still yet discovering. But the bottom line is there's things we can do to help some of these symptoms. You know, I help moms on a daily basis at my kids' soccer field. They come up to me and they say, You know what, could you give me an antibiotic? I think I have an UTI. (laughs) Yes. When I tell them I don't I'm happy to give you an antibiotic, but I really don't think it's a UTI. Why don't you eliminate why don't you alter your diet for the next week? You know, do a diary of what you're taking in and let me take a look at it. Let's see if we can eliminate some of those and let's see if you can get symptomatic relief.
0: Any promising treatments available you talk about the fact that and obviously if you can manage symptoms with diet that's obviously the best because right. we know diet is is a form of medicine if you will right but are there some promising treatments available now absolutely for,
2: for that? there are um, things you can do such as bladder installations where basically i make up a bladder cocktail consisting of four or five different ingredients that basically a patient comes into my office i um put a cystoscope or, or a telescope inside our bladder first to make sure there's nothing inside the bladder, like a mass or a lesion. Once that's done, then I um, place this cocktail inside their bladder and I let them hold it for about 30, 45 minutes and then they void it out like they mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, urinated out. So what that cocktail does, and I do that for about nine installations. So they come see me every other week. So for about 18 weeks, they're coming mm-hmm. in and out of the office. Um, it takes, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes for me to um, place the cocktail inside their bladder. It's, it's not an injection. It's a soft little catheter that goes inside their, their urethra, and I just instill the um, cocktail. And uh, my patients with the bladder installations have had about 80 to 85% relief in their symptoms.
0: Oh, that's great. I, I knew a colleague that dealt with, at the time it was IC, but um, it was... It was very, very, very disruptive on her quality of life. I mean, she just ended up being really miserable, miserable and it really affected her work life as well. Um, so to know that there are some promising treatments around now that can help relieve that is is really great to know, and I'm pleased we got a chance to talk about it. I know I got you all out of the office in the middle of the day, and I've kept you here for almost an hour already. Um, do you have some final thoughts before I let you get back to the office?
2: You know, I wanted to say that um, I'm glad that I'm going to be joining such a wonderful group of uh, physicians uh, along with Dr. Sufi and the rest of the group. And um, Dr. Thank Sufie. you.
1: Yes, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to come and talk to um, all the women of Atlanta, all the pregnant women. And um, our website is uh, com, and we have seven physicians and one physician assistant. So if... Um, if you have any gynecological concerns, feel free to reach out to us.
0: Well, I'm pleased to have you here. I'm sorry that Tanya wasn't able to sit in with us today, um, but I'm, I'm certainly pleased that she introduced us to you. If you're coming back and you're checking out the podcast, if you've not done so already, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast, and you sub- you can subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. You might just be putting some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that really makes a difference in their life, or in this case, in their pregnancy and how it goes for them. So we'll say thank you to all the folks that turn around and share this information with us. But uh, Dr. Rao, Dr. Sufi, thanks so much for making time. I know you all are busy, and uh, I'm really happy to have a chance to have you here in the studio.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Well, everybody out there, thanks for making us a part of your day. To uh, Tanya Mack and all the folks over at Women's Telehealth, we appreciate having you as partners in the show. And we look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks. And um, for all the folks out there, we'll see you all here on Top Docs Radio, same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.